Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I'm your host, Reed Coverdale. So I just want to start off by saying I did make another Twitter account. We'll see how long this one lasts. I made one a couple days ago and it literally lasted three minutes. I think I followed Dave Smith and then I was searching for Liberty Lockdown and then that was it. I was just zapped immediately. But I am back. I am... Uh, using the name at US Liberty 1967. If you get the joke, good for you. Uh, USS Liberty was already taken. So was USS Liberty 67 and USS Liberty 1967. So I just went with US Liberty 1967. Gets the point across enough. So that's me. Go follow me there if you want. No idea how long that's going to last, but uh, Twitter is temporary, not forever. So is what it is. I'll probably just keep coming back like this because uh, the, the sad thing is I've been trying to get you guys to go over to Telegram. I've been advertising at every show within two hours of creating this Twitter account. I had more followers on Twitter already than after weeks and weeks of trying to get people over to Telegram. It's just a joke. No one wants to leave YouTube. No one wants to leave Twitter. No one wants to leave Facebook, even though they censor the shit out of everything and like push our out or, you know push us way down low on the algorithm so no one finds us or whatever doesn't matter no one wants to leave so i guess i'm just going to be weaving in and out and getting banned here and there as i go and trying to still get you to migrate so speaking of that in the description i've got a link to my telegram channel go follow me there i don't get censored they don't kick people off telegram or at least no one that i've been associating with so Go follow me on Telegram, and then my Substack is also linked in the description. Go follow me there, and then I've got a link tree to all my other platforms. I'm going to start trying to use Gab. Gab is, you know, I have like 115 followers on it or something, but I still get more traffic on Gab with 115 followers than I do on Facebook with like 850 followers or whatever it is, because Facebook, it's a joke. I can't, you know, I'll post something, no one will see it. Even if it's into a group with 10,000 people in it, it'll get two likes or something. And they've even explicitly told me they were going to do that to me because I've been banned a few times for, or not banned, but suspended for, you know, a couple days or whatever. And it says your posts will be pushed to the bottom in groups when you post it. So no one will see it. So Facebook sucks. I'm still going to use it just because so many people are familiar with it. But please go follow me on Gab too and start pushing shit there. Anyway, all that out of the way, I've got a good guest today. I got to meet him in person out at Freedom Fest in Vegas. We got to uh, die in the 111 degree heat um, and have a good time otherwise at the conference there. Connor Freeman, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Reed. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, absolutely. So just for people who don't know you, what, what do you do? You write for the Libertarian Institute and you're great on Twitter. What else do you do? What's your involvement oh, in coming from you? Liberty. That means a lot. I I'm uh, <laughs> and I'm glad to see you back on, man. But uh, let's uh, I'm the assistant editor at Libertarian Institute and uh, I co-host conflicts of interest with Kyle Anslone and uh, Will Porter. And uh, I've been writing some news articles for antiwar.com lately. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I got Twitter at Freeman's mind 96. Most of everything I do goes up at the Institute. Uh, so if you want to follow me, just, uh, keep track of what everything we're doing at libertarianinstitute.org and you'll see it. Yeah. So you're a younger guy like me. Uh, when did you get into this? What kind of, what inspired you? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't Ron Paul. It seems like it would have been later on, but it was a Ron Paul when you were in school or what, what like got you interested in all this stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when I was, I, when I was a kid, I had, well, I grew up in like the 9-11 era. Like I remember that day and I was four years old. Uh, and so that affected me quite a bit. You know, I mean, it wasn't long before we lived in a state of permanent paranoia and fear right. um, over, you know, a statistical anomaly. And I didn't even know really the, you know, the backstory at all. Yeah, I basically mm -hmm. was just, uh, you know, my dad almost died that day. He was supposed to, he changed his flight plans two weeks ahead, but he was supposed to be on flight 175, the one that flew into the South tower. And so, you know, it was the era of Fox news and all this kind of stuff. So basically grew up like that. But so if I, I knew of Ron Paul around 2008 and 2007, but mm -hmm. basically, you know, I think a lot of Fox news in that, like in that era, the idea was at least my understanding of Ron Paul was basically, he's just this 
old crank who wants to legalize drugs and prostitution and everything like that. So mm-hmm. it didn't really get to me at that point. Uh, I basically was like a Republican for a while. And then I thought to me, like in high school, becoming a Democrat meant like, well, I'll watch uh, John Stewart and the Colbert report. And that'll be like, you know, this will piss off my uh, parents or whatever, the, you know, like cause mm-hmm. I, I had been a Republican basically forever. And after like a month of that, I was like, this is really stupid. Uh, and I found Bill Hicks, the stand-up comedian, who was uh, just a revelation. I'd never heard the term military-industrial complex, and the guy was talking about you know drugs and freedom and, and and liberty in a whole kind of way that I had never really seen. The great Bill Hicks, comedian who died in like 1994 uh, at 32, but I think he's he's probably he's my favorite comedian who ever lived. But um, yeah, that basically led me somehow into getting really into like comedy podcasts. And eventually I heard Dave Smith's first appearance on the Ari Shafir show in 2013 uh, called Fuck the Government. And I knew of libertarianism. Like I knew Kokesh and Molyneux and Ron Paul and Peter Schiff and these guys. But it just for whatever reason, it just didn't click. And then mm-hmm. once I heard Dave, I think he I'm sure <clears throat> he mentions Murray Rothbard and the Mises Institute on there and talking mm-hmm. about just talking about war and cops in a way that I hadn't really heard anybody do you know it reminded me a bit of hicks but it got me into enough where i was like okay and i started listening to his show and then very quickly i just like it was like ran it was like in one week i think i listened to him and tom woods i subscribed to tom's show and got into the mises institute and started reading ron paul books and then from that point on i kind of relived the ron paul moment through reading these books watching all of his debates that giant compilation that's on youtube uh, that's like seven hours long. I think I listened to that a few times and uh, read all of his books. And then I started reading every, you know, the books we all go through, which are like, you know, the Rothbard, like what has government done to our money and Hazlitt economics one lesson. And then eventually through all this, um, just reading a bunch of these books. And, and eventually I found, uh, I guess it was either the Liberty Report or the Scott Horton show. But at some point I got very into foreign policy and started reading it. Once I started reading antiwar.com, that was kind of it. I just decided like, this is the stuff I'm interested in. And I was always a good writer, so I just sort of applied that skill set to writing about this kind of stuff. And uh, that's basically how I got here. Yeah, the Libertarian Institute and Antiwar.com guys, what I, what I like about all of you, and it, it was cool hanging out with all you guys in, at Freedom Fest, um, and I, I was telling Pat McFarlane this, that there's like this this search for unbridled truth without dumb like populist or culture war overtones or whatever it's just like just tell us like what's really happening tell us how evil everybody is we want to know everything bad that everybody's doing we don't want to be like oh yeah but these are the good guys and these guys are a little like just tell us everything uh that's what's always attracted me about you guys uh what have you always been that way have you always been like i don't want to hear anything that makes me feel good i just want to know What's actually happening? Has that been something? Has that been a uh, a feature that you've always had, like looking for that, or is that something you've acquired? Or um, think, and, and uh, do you think that's accurate too? Like, oh yeah, I think we're I think we're all like that, uh, uh-huh. which is a really good thing, uh, because I don't. Yeah, I, th- I I I always identify with the as far as like the libertarian movement goes. I mean, I I'm a Rothbardian. But as far as like factions go, I really more identify with like antiwar.com and the Institute before I even, you know, work for the Institute and mm-hmm. the Ron Paul Institute. Those, so those guys like Ron and Dan and Scott and right. Eric Garris and and now Dave DeCamp and of course, Kyle and uh, and all of our great, you know, Keith and Pat and all these guys. And so to me, um, yeah. And also, I think part of the reason for that is because I guess I learned more about foreign, quite a bit more about foreign policy. I don't think I was reading antiwar.com before Trump became president. And, uh, and that, and and that first year Scott's book fool's Aaron came out that had a big impact on me, uh, especially, um, and learning about the buildup to the nine 11 and the war on terror and what got us there. But really, I think I'll be honest with you, just because of reading certain books at the time when Trump was running, like, I think I was reading, some Bob Murphy and some Tom Woods, like, you know, stuff about the great depression and the new deal. And, uh, just his, you know, I think Woods is like politically incorrect guide to American history and stuff like this. Like for whatever reason I saw Trump and just kind of like, I could tell like, I, cause I grew up, like I said, um, my family's not like that anymore. My dad is mm-hmm. pretty much an ANCAP, but like, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, um, it's really funny because, uh, 
I just grew up with the Fox News crap. So I knew when I saw him, I was like, this is not what people, I didn't, couldn't articulate that like this could be really bad and this guy could accelerate this new Cold War or whatever he ended, you know, what he ended up doing basically. But I could sort of tell like, well, he's talking about like bringing back torture and empowering uh, the national security state. Like he was going to yeah. try and empower the surveillance state. And he's talking about how he wants to bomb the shit out of ISIS and yeah, all this stuff about the Iran deal. Uh, it, it just, it seemed to me to be too, he was speaking out of, I never, basically, I guess to answer your question, I never really got into the whole thing about him being some sort of a populist or him being a, a counterweight to the deep state. I saw him as more of like, and I think this is ultimately true. I think he represented a, another faction of the deep state. And I think that yeah. they realized that they need somebody in there who could transition, whether or not certain factions, obviously, like with the Russiagate uh, lies and, and, and everything that happened, uh, you know, throughout his administration when he was getting attacked by, you know, Brandon and Comey and all these guys. I think that there's a definite group of neoconservatives who have power, uh, mm. who infected his administration. And I don't think he really would have stopped, would have stopped that, um, because he had the opportunity to bring in good people in his administration. He did not, they didn't either. He didn't get the briefings that were sent to him, but he could have had people like Doug Bandow you know, who's a, you know, who writes for, uh, you know, he works at the Cato Institute and writes for antiwar.com and the American conservative and stuff like this. Like, they could have brought somebody in like him or, or you know, uh, an anti-war, uh, you know, realist foreign policy thinker, libertarian. And, um, but they didn't do that. And uh, I think that basically they need somebody in there who the Republicans I think he helped transition them from being obsessed with terrorism and Muslims and all this into supporting the new Cold War with China. I think that yeah. was a big part of what he succeeded in doing. And I think what they also learned was that he could accelerate policies in the Middle East, but rebrand them. So like you notice a lot of people talk about how he brought peace to the Middle East with the Abraham Accords and things like this. But all that is is throwing the Palestinians under the bus and you know, building the foundation for what Biden is trying to do now, which is building this anti-Iran NATO style alliance mm -hmm. uh, surrounding them and providing all this military uh, aid to, well, not aid in Israel's case, but, you know, massive arms sales to, like to the UAE, for instance. Uh, and that was a part of these phony normalization deals with Israel. And of course, Israel has this, you know, they have the qualitative military edge uh, or the quantitative military edge where basically they, they, use these agreements and these arms sales to these other states that they're not really at odds with at all to justify saying, well, now you need to basically double down on the military aid you give us so we can maintain our supremacy in the region uh, militarily. And so that's just, it's not a peace deal and I, I, by any stretch. And uh, even when early on in the Biden administration, people thought he, he was going to tilt more towards, uh, you know, Eastern Europe and, and the Asia Pacific. Brett McGurk, who famously, uh, you know, I, I believe he was the envoy for the anti-ISIS coalition. He resigned when Trump said he was going to, one of the times when Trump said he was going to leave Syria. And this is a mm -hmm. guy who supports the Israeli airstrikes that happen almost every week in Syria. And uh, now he's the national security coordinator for the Middle East on uh, Biden's National Security Council. And he, you know, they basically did this almost about face thing where like, even if they were kind of playing with that idea, especially after the Afghanistan withdrawal, they were like, no, it's back to basics. We're, we're not leaving. And, mm -hmm. uh, and basically I think that has a lot to do with the Israel lobby, but also, I mean, you just saw they sold like, you know, $5 billion worth of arms or not. They've approved them anyway, like these Patriot missiles to Saudi and Thad missiles to the UAE. But I guess what I, I'm saying is I, I see Trump is more or less building a, a bridge for the new era. And it was codified in this counterterrorism in this, um, national defense strategy from 2018 under Mattis, where they said, we're shifting away from counterterrorism in, in North Africa and the Middle East toward great power competition with Russia and China. And I learned about the Asia pivot, you know, a couple of years ago and started to realize, because I was reading Dave DeCamp at antiwar.com, his whole buildup with China was really carrying on with an Obama policy, um, which is very, damn. I mean, this is the, it's, that's why I said in this recent article, I'm like, this is the Democrats' projects so this whole idea that republicans are like yeah well we we get it like we're not falling for this sh shit about russia we're we we're america first we want to go prepare for war with china because they're the yeah. number one threat I mean they're just they're just regurgitating pentagon propaganda 
um, yeah. and stuff that comes from the Democrats. I mean, the guy running his uh, Asia policy now is the architect of the Asia pivot uh, under Biden. And it's like, you guys are trying to out Democrat the Democrats and how much you want to go, uh, you how much you want to confront China and build up against them. It's just, it seems counterintuitive. And uh, I thought, and hopefully yeah, that's a good strategy is to kind of show them like, you hate the military industrial complex, you want to put America first and you hate the Democrats, right? Well, then, you know, facilitating all this is not the way to go. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting to see how they kind of transition from one administration to the next and weaponize the dissenters into almost becoming warmongers because their guy ends up supporting it in a different flavor. So a great documentary everyone should watch is Robbie Martin's A Very Heavy Agenda because it goes into how Bill Kristol, Robert Kagan, all the Project for New American Century people, they infiltrate Obama's administration and Obama, the anti-Iraq war guy, ends up being supported by the same people who pushed for the Iraq war and expanding that, you know, ideology to other countries instead of just Iraq. So, I mean, they've obviously done that with Trump to the point you're making, too. What, 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 I, what I find interesting about it is... Um, the just like with Obama, you had the neocons angry that he didn't want to straight up invade Syria or, uh, you know, to go as hard as they wanted him to in all these conflicts. They would constantly say he's a weak president. You know, he has this foreign policy of leading from behind where it was so removed from the truth. And they absolutely did that to Trump, too. They acted like Trump was this pacifist isolationist where that was ridiculous. I mean, he didn't start a new war. That is true. But he ramped the one in Afghanistan up until the very end. Uh, drone strikes weren't even being monitored anymore because they were so off the charts. I mean, he he elevated basically everything, but they would still criticize him from a more neoconservative perspective of he's not doing enough. And uh, what I think is funny uh, now is with this FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, I've tried to point to people that they can't go after Trump for any of his really egregious crimes because everybody who's going after him is equally complicit in the really evil things, whether it's war crimes or connections to Epstein, whatever it is, they can't touch it because if they start uncovering that, then their connections to the same things will be uncovered but it, it's a it's it's impressive how they try to create these false dichotomies as you know the the winds switch in each direction i've just i've never i'm never uh i'm never not amazed at how well they can manipulate that i guess yeah i've been uh that was one of i mean and i gotta give credit to robbie because i think i think he's i think he's brilliant and uh that documentary had a huge effect on me and uh i think uh one of the, I mean, one of the things about what he does to me, I think he has a healthy paranoia about what, uh, you know, infiltration and people yeah. who co-opt movements. And that's something that libertarians should be uh, on guard. You know, we should be very uh, skeptical of that kind of infiltration. It's one of the reasons why I'm not, I'm probably one of the least enthusiastic people about uh, lining up with uh, Republicans or even the populace, right? Because I just don't, tr I don't, trust it. Like mm -hmm. I, I find some of these people, whether it's Blake Masters or Joe Kent or whoever they are, JD Vance to be very, uh, either they don't tell you enough about them or they just actually have bad foreign policies. Uh, like, uh, and I don't know if this is still the case, but I know that Joe Kent, for instance, his, uh, his campaign site said a bunch of stuff about how we should strengthen. This is before the war in February, you know, mm -hmm. in Ukraine that we should strengthen NATO, we should cut off Europe from Russian gas, we should expand the Abraham Accords, we should confront China with a coalition of nations and all this stuff. And I'm just like, how are, you know, I don't see anything about, and this is true for Masters too, because Masters has even less information on his campaign site now than when I got into an argument with some post-libertarians about this guy, like at the beginning of the year. Uh, and I went to it recently. There's still his only thing about foreign policy is about how what a big threat China is and mm -hmm. how uh, I think it's something about intellectual property or something like this. Uh, digital warfare. That's the other thing Kent said. I think Kent said China has already declared war against us. And so we have to act accordingly. And um, I know J.D. Vance is like 
very bad on the Iran deal. I mean, it's really funny because I cover the Iran deal on a week. I mean, Iran news and JSPOA news on conflicts of interest week by week. Uh, and I mean, he has a quote that Daniel Larison, who is the probably the best right winger on foreign policy. Daniel Larison's, uh, he writes again for antiwar.com and the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, formerly at the American Conservative. And uh, no, he wrote a piece about J.D. Vance about his Iran policy. And there's a quote in there that I found where, where J.D. Vance characterizes Biden's policy on Iran as being obsessed with returning to the deal. It's August 14th, 2022. We're <laughs> closer to war with Iran now than any time basically under Trump. I mean, honestly, like the, the amount of, I mean, he is literally trying to uh, you know, encircle Iran, like I said, with this mini NATO alliance, I don't think that's going to be as successful, but it, that those arms sales to the Saudis and the UAE could, you know, be an indication that the, they, they might be more successful behind the scenes than we think. But at the same time, he is expanding sanctions. It, it looks like he, they do not want to return to the deal. I mean, the Iranians keep making concession after concession, but the Israelis have been drone striking Iran particularly this year and uh you know they do these quadcopter suicide drone attacks so they hit like a they hit a military complex in Parchin uh, the Parchin military complex which is not far from Tehran and they killed an engineer there they had the most likely the MEK assassinate this uh, IRGC colonel Hassan Syed Koday in his driveway a couple of guys on motorcycles just shot him in his car to death uh, and then there's been a series of like uh, poisonings and all kinds of like uh, accidents where people were described as martyrs. It's all these people who are either in the IRGC or they're connected to uh, the aerospace industry in Iran. And uh, they carried out a drone attack in Kermanshah on their drone, uh, one of their drone facilities. The Iranians drone uh, facilities destroyed like much of their drone fleet. Um, there was an attack in Tabriz uh, reportedly, which killed, actually killed some people. And it's it's caused, I mean... The, the, if they have done this, if they've actually killed six people, it's 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 unprecedented because the Israelis, like when they would kill those nuclear scientists in the Obama administration, it's like four or five people in the span of like two years. And this whole mm -hmm. assassination campaign I just laid out went it was really over the course of a month. Uh, and uh, and Biden's whole point is like, yeah, well, we support everything Israel does and we're very proud of our support for Israel. And then he goes to he goes to tell uh, I guess it was Jerusalem. Uh, and sign the Jerusalem Declaration. It's this joint declaration where he says, we'll use all of our national power to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Uh, and he said he would use force if necessary. And the thing is, uh, Iran has never sought nuclear weapons. Um, and But the, our policy at this point is really driving them to do that. I mean, there mm -hmm. is there are certain hawks in Iran and outside Iran who want Iran to leave the non-proliferation treaty, uh, their safeguards agreement with the IEA that they've been in since 1970. And if they do that, they might as well have a bomb at that point, right? Because not that most Americans know about the NPT, but I mean, they under the deal, Republicans still basically believe Iran is seeking a bomb or has one. Um, you know, the statistics of how many people know about Israel's nukes versus how many people think Iran has nukes are really disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, I mean, at the same time, he's, he's nearly at, we're at brinksmanship with Russia and China. This is also happening at the same time. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how, uh, how these arms sales are going to affect again, the, the MNC's ceasefire and things like this, but I, I gotta say, um, yeah, I wrote a piece about Trump at the very end of his administration in like 2020 for the Institute called Nothing Delivered, Trump's Anti-War Deceptions. And I, it could have sounded ex like I was exaggerating at the time, but I did say like, yeah, he may not have started any new wars, but he has actually set the stage for brinksmanship with Russia and China. So whatever mm -hmm. happens next, you know, and, and I think as soon as Biden came in, he basically ramped up much of the same policies, like pretty clearly. He sent a B-52 bomber over the Persian Gulf in his like first week in office. Uh, and they sent warships to the Black Sea. I mean, they drastically escalated the, the naval presence in the Black Sea. Um, but it was they we had ships in there for like 182 days last year, according to Stars and Stripes. And it was all based on this nonsense about like, oh, well, you know, with COVID, uh, 
we really weren't as we didn't have our ships in the Black Sea as much as we would have liked to. So we've got to really amp that up this year. And I think they basically just jumped the shark, you know, because they carried out the largest war drills throughout Eastern Europe. This Defender Europe 21. Pat McFarlane has an excellent piece about this called The Danger of Great Power Competition with Russia and China or The, the Danger of Great Power Competition at the Institute. And it's uh, and he talks about this. I mean, the, these were the largest drills since the Cold War era. All throughout Eastern Europe, many much of it on Russia's borders, um, it went on for months. And uh, you know they were doing drills in Ukraine, like not just in the Black Sea, with like thirty plus countries doing naval exercises, <clears throat> preparing for war or uh, enhancing interoperability, as they call it. But like you know, preparing for war with Russia. And some of the one of them was Rapid Trident Twenty One, and that actually was carried out. Ukraine hosted it, and it was in. With NATO allies, like that's the thing. Like Ted Carpenter talks about, it. it's like they made Ukraine a de facto NATO state, uh, and that's one of the th that's one of the, probably the main thing really that led to this uh, to this war. But um, yeah, I mean, if you look at like the China stuff, I mean, he he just sent like aircraft an aircraft carrier and several warplanes to the South China Sea, sailed a warship to the Taiwan Strait. All this stuff happened like almost as soon as Biden came into office, and next thing you know, he's got two aircraft carriers in the South China Sea doing military drills and preparing for war. And uh, it's been pretty shocking to see, like you said, about the seamless. And that's the thing. Like, if you look at um, like Robbie was talking, you know, Robbie shows in that documentary, the foreign policy initiative and how it comes out of PNAC. Sort of Kagan and Crystal rebranding their their sort of PNAC is defunct. And then they do this thing during the Obama years. And one of the things that's interesting is you get to learn like about Josh Rogan. And so Josh Rogan had a piece like last week, maybe. Or the week before. Anyway, if you all look up Washington Post, Josh Rogan, he's Bill Crystal's boy at the Washington Post. He has an article out right now that's about how, well, you know, we can take on Russia and China at the same time. We have to. It's our obligation as the, you know, whatever, however he phrases it. Uh, and uh, but he says in there, which is very interesting, because it seems to me that they actually do get what's going on here. What you and I are concerned about, because he goes, you know, there's this he calls it right and left. And I don't know if that's the right term but he's like there's this he's like the right has there's this problem he's like because the left hates russia and they want to really expand the confrontation of russia and the escalate they want to escalate with russia he's like but they don't really they kind of want to ease off on china and the republicans they want to really expand and confront uh you know expand in the asia pacific and 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 basically military confront militarily confront china but they really they're not enthusiastic about expanding nato with finland and sweden and 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 funding the war in ukraine and all this and confronting putin and he's like but thankfully we have all these great lawmakers from both parties in power right now who support all of it. And like, if a guy like that, who's just, you know, a neocon who's not really, I mean, he's more, I guess, a centrist. I don't think he really would, you could call him like necessarily a Democrat or Republican. I'm not sure. I don't, I guess I don't know enough about Rogan specifically, but if you read this, it's basically him saying that, yeah, it would be nice if we could get the whole American public on to like hating both Russia and China as much as we do. But basically he's saying, I think we got a good thing going here. It seemed to me like that's what he was saying. Like, cause, cause we've got enough support for both of these, the both parts of the new cold war. And, uh, you know, if you look at like Bob Menendez, who just introduced this Taiwan policy act of 2022, it's like completely upending the one China policy. And talking about making Taiwan a major non-NATO ally and giving them $4.5 billion of military aid every uh, over four years and, uh, you know, expanding their involvement in international institutions and changing the name of the de facto embassy in the U.S. from the the. Tai the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office to the Taiwan Representative Office, which would basically give it an official uh, status. Um, all these things are extremely hawkish. Uh, and they talk about how like they're going to remove all basically all the restrictions on um, bilateral relations between uh, American officials and their Taiwanese counterparts, which is extremely hawkish and, and what is what ultimately has led to this crisis currently with the drills all around Taiwan because of Pelosi's visit. I mean, it was just the coup de grace uh, on top of all these, which started under Trump. But sending like high le all these congressional delegations, there's another one heading over there soon, um, and and high level officials basically just trampling over the one China policy and and giving sending the message to like as they call them independence forces that hey you know we, you know we and actually Menendez says in his article for the New York Times promoting this he goes uh, 
it's something like we're laying out the vision for how we will defend Taiwan for decades to come. So, I mean, it's, they're really, he's like, we need less ambiguity in this policy. And if you look at like the Republicans, they just think base and Lindsey Graham is the co-sponsor of course, but they think like, basically, I don't know. I, I, I guess I need to pay more. I definitely need to pay more attention to like right-wing media, like new right media. But from what I can see, they, it sounds to me like they basically still think like I saw Matt Gates on Jesse Waters the other day on Fox News, and he said the Chinese have taken over the federal government without firing a shot. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, <clears throat> I don't know where we go from there, but I think we have a real <laughs> opportunity. I think the LP has a big opportunity with the whole Mar-a-Lago thing. I don't know. I mean, that could I guess we need to uh, double down on our efforts because this is going to suck a lot of air out of the room, I think. And it's, there's going to yeah. be so much more. I mean, people are going to rally around him now. People we could, we could really, it would be worthwhile to recruit people. Because I think his, I think the people who want America first and want to end these endless wars, I think they've basically just been, not to be like patronizing or anything, but I think that, you know, if you keep, if you're in an echo chamber, we're, you know, libertarians are in echo chambers too, right? Anti-war yeah. people are in echo chambers too. But like, if you're, if everyone keeps telling you like China, 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 and I mean, it's, it's gotta be pretty, I mean, we're, we're, we need a new Giuliani moment basically on that issue. And I think that's yeah. what, what I think Dave has a real chance to do that, which would be awesome. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the China Hawk neocons are viewed as potential allies where, I mean, Ron Paul could have thought that way about Republicans in 2007. You know, he could have been like, well, it's more likely that I'm going to be able to influence Republicans. So I don't want to tell them their heroes suck and that, you know, they've been bamboozled, but that's exactly what he did. <laughs> you know, he told yeah. them, no, you guys are hundred percent wrong. This is why they're, this is why they attacked us, you know, laid it all out in front of them. Didn't sugarcoat it at all. And a lot of people seem to be cautious to do that with the so-called populist, right? Today, they, they don't want to step on their toes. Don't want to make them feel uncomfortable where I'd make the argument. Now is the time to make them uncomfortable because they're already, you know, they've already been pushed out of their comfort zone by the last couple of years. Um, and a lot of them, if you just straight up tell them the facts, you say, look, this is what Trump said he was going to do. And this is what he did. These are the bills he signed. Here's the legislation right here. Here's his signature. A lot of them will listen to you and they'll be like, wow, I did not know that. I didn't think that was the case. So this whole idea that we need to just be like really easy on them and, you know, just kind of like lightly encourage them in the right direction and not say any harsh words. I mean, these are right wingers. Right wingers are supposed to be tough anyway, yeah. right? Like that's kind of their persona. So, I mean, most of my life I've worked with right wingers. The culture is say what you mean, mean what you say. That's what they expect from you. So do it to them. Like tell them, hey, man, I love you, brother, but you're wrong. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. what's really going on. I don't know. Well, no, I think that's I think that was the point I made in this uh, recent piece for the Institute, because it's like um, Ron Paul's that Giuliani moment was he got booed. Like, yeah. I mean, I think I've heard McAdams tell this story, Dan McAdams, a couple times that he didn't think that went well. Mm -hmm. uh, but they realized online people were going nuts for it, you know, but in the room, I mean, Jesus, uh, talk about like, I mean, they all want to basically at the end of that clip, everybody knows on YouTube, they all want to jump in so they can attack him. Yeah. And they're like, wait a minute. Mitt Romney's like, I want to get 30 seconds. And then someone who, one of the other ones, like, I want my 30 yeah. seconds. And like, but like, the thing is, is he, that's what, that's what actually changes people. Like Bill Hicks for me was like a big slap upside the head. Right. Like uh, Ron Paul was like that for me too. Like, uh, you know, hearing Dave Smith talk about uh, the wars and talk about all these kinds of things. That, that was, that's, you know, war is, Murray Rothbard opens for New Liberty, or at least the second chapter, which I think used to be the beginning of the book by saying, hey, war is mass murder, taxation is theft, and conscription is slavery. That's how you change people. <laughs> right. Like you fuck, you gotta be, Siri, I mean, you got to be you can't pull back because, um, well, I think it's also like I'll just be like, oh, you guys are cool. But yeah. like, that doesn't change anything. Like, so what if uh, you like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say, like, I mean, it, 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 if, if a bunch of libertarians get on like Tim Pool's show, but they just kind of like hang out with him and talk shit. And it's like uh, just like trying to boost your own what, you know, platform or whatever. 
I think that's not the way to do it. I think what Scott did is the way to do it. Cause like he right. got, I mean, they, you finally, somebody came in and, and basically debated him about this, this China stuff because, uh, you know, I mean, pool, Pat sent me a video recently where pools like, Taiwan is the real ruler of China. Like there, I, I want to see reunification where Taiwan rules the whole mainland. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's like, cause they're illegitimate. Cause the commies took over in the in, in 1949 and all this. I'm like, dude, you're like, I mean, to the, that's to the right of, of Trump and Biden. That's yeah. way far out there that people don't realize how crazy that is. Yeah. We do not have the power to do that. We don't have the money. And, just playing with this whole thing. We're like, we're going to escalate with Taiwan and use them as a, a way to counter China. Cause like th there's a quote from uh, I think Raymond green is like the deputy director of our de facto embassy in Taiwan. Where he's like, you know, you know, previous in previous decades, you know, the Taiwan issue was seen more as like a, a, uh, something that needed to be mitigated to better us China relations. He's like, but now we see it as a great way to counter China. And as a way to like, uh, you know, they, now they have all this rhetoric where it's like, well, we're just want, we just want a free and open Indo-Pacific or it's like Tucker Carlson will talk about, we need to, I mean, he even said the other day on the show, like, cause M Colonel McCracker, Douglas McCracker had a great appearance on his show about this whole thing with Pelosi, but yeah. right before it, Tucker's it. like, Tucker's like saying, like calling her out for being like provocative. Right. But he's in the middle of his thing. I'm watching. He's like. Now, there may be good reasons to prepare for war with China because that could be inevitable. I'm like, how the fuck is it inevitable? <laughs> yeah. It's that's like, you know, I mean, what, what, what think, I mean, that's, that's crazy. We, we, we are not fighting a war with a, a nuclear superpower that can hit United, the United States with, you know, warheads tipped on three stage intercontinental missiles. Right. We're not doing that. You know, I don't, I mean, I, it's just insane. Like I remember him, I think it was, he was talking to Tulsi and they were talking about how crazy the war in Ukraine is. And, uh, can you believe we're risking nuclear war for Ukraine? And he's like, no, there may be reasons to like go to war with a major power. He's like perhaps to protect shipping lanes in the South China sea. I'm just like, I, I mean, I, it's just the, the logic of all of, there's really no logic. It just, I think that. And I know Tucker does some good work. Uh, I yeah. do. And that's one of the things that's interesting about it. Because I do think that they've, you know, I've, I've been saying this for a while now. I think that they basically, somebody has to realize this, and it's not just us, that everybody hates Hillary Clinton and John McCain. And I don't think that'll really work anymore. Like, people like, you can't get rid of Chuck Schumer and, and you know, uh, and you can't get rid of thanks, Dave. And you yeah, can't get rid the, of we got the flannel and beard gang here. It's good. <laughs> we didn't even plan it. It's just yeah. uh, you know. But uh, I I think um, you know I it, with uh, you can't get rid of Chuck Schumer and people like this and Bob Menendez and all these hawks, Lindsey Graham. I mean, I don't know how you actually get rid of them. I think they're going to die in office. Pelosi, people like this. Well, maybe Pelosi will lose. But I think uh, uh, she certainly won't be House Speaker now, but I think basically they need people who can uh, they need people who at least appear like they have to diversify. There's like a division. There's an obvious division of labor that comes in because mm -hmm. like you can't just be f for going to war with every one of the empire's enemies because it's too obvious and people right. don't respect that anymore. So you need people who are like. Uh, either they're really bad on, you know, they're really pro-Israel or they're really bad on, you know, continuing to fight any, you know, bomb Sunnis all over the place with drones and and, and sending special operations, uh, operations forces all over, you know, Africa. Or they're just China hawks and they, they're better on Russia or they're big Russia hawks. And, you know, it's just weird. Like, I remember Bernie Sanders' campaign site. I think it's still up there. It says we need to phase out Assad. Oh yeah, he was awful on that. <laughs> he's he's like big pro sanctions on Russia yeah. guy. Oh yeah, you know? he sucks. <laughs> yeah, they all voted for that Ukraine aid bill, like all these progressive Democrats, and it's like with Bernie. Like I'm so sick of people calling him a sellout. It's like <laughs> this is Bernie forever. You look back into the '90s. He voted to bomb Kosovo. He voted for the Iraqi Liberation Act. He voted to fund the war in Iraq after only voting against George W. Bush's unilateral invasion. Uh, he's, he's fucking awful. Like he's been bad on everything, but anyway, I just had to throw that in there. So. No, but you're a hundred percent right. <laughs> like that's why Ron Paul is, is kind of, I mean, that's he, that's the model, uh, yeah. obviously. And cause he, and, and look, no one, I mean, 
I have to imagine, I hope, like, I and I know because I follow a lot of leftists on Twitter, like Bernie Sanders is basically viewed by much of the left the way you just described him. Yeah. And I think that's really healthy. They're, ju they're just wrong that he's a sellout. He's a fraud. Yeah. He's always been this way. Like, it's not like he was good until 2016 and then he sold out to Hillary. It's like, that is Bernie. That's what he's always been. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a big booster of like getting the F-35 built in Vermont because it's good for the workers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's what we were talking about earlier. The the different flavor on neoconservatism, like, oh, well, if it's good for jobs for middle income Americans, then it's, you know, neoconservatism is fine. Dropping bombs is fine. So uh, I did want to talk about this a little bit because you and I at Freedom Fest, uh, we I got interviewed by the uh, uh, what is it called? Um yeah, now I'm forgetting the name of it. The podcast there, um, uh, Live and Let Live podcast. And oh, yeah. you you said you had been interviewed by him a couple months earlier or something. And I think I agree with that guy on like all of his philosophy. I mean, he believes every individual has rights to their own property, rights over themselves, complete agency to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting other people. Totally agree with that. But then we got into foreign policy a little bit and it started getting weird because he started saying stuff like we need to stand for the rights of people everywhere. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I mean, conceptually, I agree. Like if you were to ask me, does a person in Saudi Arabia have the same rights I do? I would say yes. But what can I do to enforce that? Like, that's where it gets weird. Like, and he also wouldn't quite get to the point of saying he'd be like, yeah, you know, I don't think we should intervene over there either, but we need to like stand for their individual rights. And I was like, dude, that's, that's so vague. And I don't understand like what that implies other than basically green lighting intervention. And, you know, we, we hear a lot from legitimate evil war hawks who use this, uh, they use this language to encourage intervention whether it's Bill Crystal talking about women in Afghanistan and the rights are going to be trampled on by the Taliban taking over again, uh, whether it's China Hawks talking about the CCP and how awful they are. Um, but then also I hear it from people who I really don't think um, have thought through it very much and are actually coming at it from, you know, a, a, they're coming at it from a sincere, a sincere place. Like they actually care about the people there and they actually are sad that they're being um, killed and, you know, imprisoned for their beliefs or politically uh, trodden upon, whatever it is. Um, but I wanted to talk with you about, like, how that is actually dangerous, because in reality, there is nothing you can do about someone in Taiwan who is going to be un who, who could be like under Chinese rule if China actually ends up politically or militarily taking over Taiwan, whatever it is, there's nothing that you can really do to stop that or make their life better. And in fact, if you get involved with it from a political standpoint, you're actually probably going to make it worse, especially, especially like with Taiwan and uh, with Ukraine, like with Ukraine, we made that situation worse by sticking our finger in it. There wasn't a ton of incentive for Putin to invade Ukraine without us arming the shit out of Ukraine and ignoring the Minsk two agreement and all this stuff that finally made him kind of say, okay, whatever, I guess you're going to push my hand. And there's a very similar situation taking place with Taiwan right now, like Taiwan or sorry, China does not want to militarily invade Taiwan. It would be such a miscalculation on their part because you'd turn the people against them. Uh, they're slowly starting to politically win over Taiwan anyway. But uh, I just wanted your thoughts on this whole concept. When people come from a good place and they're speaking passionately about defending human rights in other places, but there's not really anything they can do about it. And all they're doing is kind of green lighting government action that will just make this worse. I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah. On that. Well, uh, so, no, I had a great conversation with those guys. Um, it just took a weird turn at the end because he was asking me questions about what you're just saying. Because I forget what country he was talking about, but he was basically making the point of like, well, listen. He basically painted as like Russia was totally in the wrong and in going into Ukraine, which I don't deny. There were other mm -hmm. things that they could have done. They could have cut gas off to Europe and sure. uh, basically gotten you know, leaned on Europe and they're using their energy dependence 
on Russia to their advantage to get them to press for an implementation of uh, the Minsk II Accords and also responding sincere, getting the Americans to really take seriously and act on some of these uh, demands that were made in the security proposals that they had submitted in the months prior uh, to the war. Um, which are all things, I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff that they could have done to prevent that war is still actually possible. Like they could restore the INF treaty. Right. They could, which, you know, which Trump ripped up. They could roll, they could uh, not install, uh, they could roll back military infrastructure in Eastern Europe back to where it was before 1997 and abide by the NATO Russia, NATO Russia founding act and things like this. Uh, they, I mean, they, there's a lot of things he could rescind the invitation to Kiev to join NATO and all these things. And uh, that would go a long way. They could recognize Crimea, just take a, you know, eat some humble pie or whatever and just do it because it's like it's none of your business. Uh, and uh, they wouldn't have, you know, seized Crimea. I mean, they didn't kill anybody when they did it, but that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the coup in uh, right. 2014 when they overthrew Yanukovych and all this and threatened, uh, you know, the Sevastopol naval base and all this stuff. So they he could do all that. The reason they don't do it is because they want the war to keep going. To your point about this question, I think it's, it reflects a certain problem with libertarianism, which to me is just a symptom of they're not, uh, to put it like politely, I just don't think they're reading enough antiwar.com. Like mm -hmm. we have so many things we could do to actually mm -hmm. help people, uh, well, maybe not be freer and maybe not have their natural rights, their Rothbardian, Lockean natural rights uh, respected. Um, but what we could do is we could stop supporting Saudi Arabia right. and we could stop supporting the UAE and we could end the war in Yemen. We could stop sending aid to Israel and yeah. we could announce to everybody <laughs> that they have nuclear weapons and that it, and, and just realize that what we've been doing for the past since the 1970s uh, has been illegal. You know, giving all I've this been making aid. this point all year long. I'm like, if you guys hate genocide and you hate occupations and you hate murder. Like, let's clean our own house first. Let's stop yeah. funding it. Let's stop propping it up. Stop supporting it. Go on. I'm but a little yeah, bit I more just... like, I think that, I mean, and maybe this is wrong. I think some libertarians are basically universalists, which I get because in principle it makes sense. But I think at this time in history, our job is to uh, basically work towards and do everything we can in our lifetimes to abolish this empire. It's the worst purveyor of violence, like Martin Luther King said, in our lifetimes in the whole world. So, and also, if you want to criticize other governments for rights abuses and and uh, and for killing people and torturing people, okay, let's talk about the military dictatorship in Egypt. There's like a lot of things we could do. And if you want to talk about like these other things in other countries where people, well, then I would say talk about the satellites of the empire. I mean, because there's a lot to choose from there. And also yeah. the other thing we could do is, you know, instead of pointing our fingers at countries under sanctions where we're starving people to death by the tens of thousands, probably more. I mean, for how long, I mean, you look at like North Korea and Iran and how long we've had these. We don't really know what the excess death rate is in the Iran sanctions. We do know what happened in Iraq in the 90s. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of children, hundreds of thousands of adults. Uh, and but, you know, we point our fingers at these people and go, uh, well, look at, you know, I mean, like the, uh, the the Air Force literally told the Washington Post, like officers, it's in Scott's book uh, enough already where they're like, well, you know, we're we bombed all the civilian infrastructure because these people are responsible for what their government does. Yeah, so are we. And that's mm -hmm. the logic of, um, you know, Al Qaeda, basically, which is why they thought they were justified killing Americans, um, yeah. you know, on 9-11. And so. I think basically we have a lot of options here and all of them involve uh, ending our foreign interventions, backing, you know, maybe not back apartheid in Palestine. And maybe we shouldn't have, uh, you know, backed a bunch of child molesting uh, heroin kingpin commu former communists in Afghanistan and warlords. And then, you know, all in the name of, you know, women and, 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 and girls schools. And then all of a sudden when we lose the war, we uh, well, we'll just starve them all to death. And no one talks about that. No one. I mean, I never hear anybody say that we should do something about our own government here or some right. government overseas that our government supports and intervene there. Because what he was asking me was basically, do you support sending like private mercenary groups that are voluntarily funded into yeah. like authoritarian <laughs> states to fight and, and basically fight for regime change in the name of liberty and freedom and whatever? And I said, no. I mean, I don't. I actually don't. Because here's the other thing. I usually, when people say that, it's usually not about some government that's backed by the U.S., which is interesting because it does kind of mean like, 
they know that like what they're doing is wrong and that they mm -hmm. could face serious consequences for it. Um, whereas, uh, I don't see many people getting, except for like our side about, you know, what the hell are former American special operators doing near the front lines in Ukraine, training right. them and, and helping plan operations against Russian soldiers. Why do we have NATO special operators from Lithuania and France and Britain? And, uh, I believe Canada on the ground in Ukraine, again, doing similar things. We have the CIA mostly in Kiev, uh, you know, passing on massive amounts of intelligence to the Ukrainian armed forces and all this stuff. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And it looks like they may actually be already attacking Crimea, and uh, Dave DeCamp asked uh, the State Department uh, a little while ago, like, do you, you know, does this whole restriction on these uh, artillery, these uh, high mobility artillery rocket systems, you know, this restriction about not going into Russian territory and attacking them there, although there are reports of that already happening, not necessarily with, not with the HIMARS, but, you know, they, um, there have been reports where they're saying like they have like a Ukrainian intelligence officer and special officer saying, yeah, we're going behind enemy lines and planting explosives and they don't even know what's going on. Um, but he goes, uh, you know, does this restriction apply to Crimea? And, and they just told him Crimea is Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that could start, that could really go. I mean, we could be in World War Three very quickly because that's that that's Russian territory. The people there, you know, believe that and the Russians do. And they're not going to I mean, that's a real escalation. Uh, and so uh, my I guess my point is, is like if you sent. If the Russians sent private mercenaries, this is what I said to the guy. If the Russians or the Chinese sent private mercenaries to DC to like, I don't know, overthrow our government, what I don't think he would be going, well, let's hear them out because, you know, <laughs> I mean, with the Waco massacre and, uh, you know, and uh, the, with the, I mean, they're really, they're clearly, uh, they're bringing all these new IRS agents and the fact that we have American citizens who are detained in solitary confinement for the January 6th. Thing. Like, I don't see people being like, uh, let's, let's hear these guys out. I think it's, uh, they probably got some good arguments here. Uh, I think that, you know, we would act, we would probably go to war with Russia and China, even if it was just mm -hmm. some corporation voluntarily funded anarcho-capitalist uh, Russian mercenary group. I, I don't think that would fly. And I think if you sent like, look, I mean, we've tried to do, Trump tried to do coups in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, people don't like that. Uh, it's not, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, especially when you're yeah. starving these countries to death. I think basically, I just think we need to not, we have so much blood on our hands right now. And I think that's, look, if we want to keep talking about how it's a democracy and all of this, then honestly, this is, a lot, this blood is on our hands. Let's be honest. And we have kind of played around for a long time. We're like, okay, well, like, and I'm not saying, look, I am not saying like there needs to be like, I'm, I'm you know, what he's saying. In other words, I would not advocate like violent resistance to right. this government. But I am saying that we need to do something to change these policies and stop all this mass murder and starvation because we're responsible for it. And I think that it's just wrong to like, look abroad. Like in the meantime, like your government has killed a million people in Iraq and half a million people in Syria. And who knows how many people probably more than at this point, maybe half a million in Yemen alone mm. and just all these countries. And we're like, yeah, but you know, Cuba, like they, they, they're, they're they have horrible economic policies and they're an authoritarian yeah. uh, state. Um, and like, I don't know, maybe you should get, you should, we should close Guantanamo Bay before we start attacking Cuba for the way they treat their people. Maybe we should lift the embargo. By the way, this is all the stuff Ron Paul said. Yeah. You know, I mean, his, his whole thing was diplomacy, engagement, free trade and free travel and cultural exchange. And I think that should be the libertarian foreign policy. And I don't yeah. mean free travel for people like Lindsey Graham uh, or <laughs> Nancy Pelosi to go to Taiwan. I don't mean that. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan because this is one of those areas where I saw Democrats who I was told a few years ago I was supposed to think were good on war and foreign relations and stuff like Ro Khanna, who were uh, applauding Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan because in the United States of America, we don't kowtow to authoritarian governments. We stand for freedom and we stand for the rights of the Taiwanese. Why was it? bad for why don't you just explain to people why it was bad for nancy pelosi to go to taiwan and what that means for the people of taiwan that she went there now yeah so we haven't sent a house speaker uh 
to Taiwan since Newt Gingrich did it in 1997. It's 25 years ago. So while they talk about how it's precedent and like, uh, oh, we've done this before. It was a very different situation. It was after the third Taiwan Strait crisis. Gingrich actually went to China as well. Uh, and China was much weaker militarily at the time. And um, and it's this is all coming in the wake of like what I said with, uh, you know, I mean, Trump, uh, Biden. So Trump did not even fly a thousand sorties. I say this like that's great. But like he flew like something like 980 sorties of spy planes in the South China Sea, the East China Sea and the Yellow Sea. Biden escalated that to over 2000. I mean, by November, it was 2000. By February, sending spy planes into the, into the waters around China 75 times a month in February of 21. We send warships to the Taiwan Strait constantly. Biden's constantly gaffing, excuse me, like every month, I should say. And uh, Biden has gaffed multiple times saying that we will defend Taiwan, basically saying that the one China policy is over. And this is, you know, we severed relations with official relations with Taipei in 1979 and recognized Beijing as the the government of all of China. And uh, but we have the strategic ambiguity policy where we don't say if we would militarily intervene or not in the in the case of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. But we're not supposed to have an embassy there. We're not supposed to have official relations. We're not supposed to have, uh, I mean, we've been doing it for decades, but sending troops over there, we're supposed to basically provide them weaponry to defend themselves with. But under Biden, you know, we have, he's Tsai Ing-wen, who's pretty hawkish. The Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan is very pro-independence. Uh, and this is something, Gareth Porter has a very good piece about this. People should read it, The Gray Zone. This started under Obama. Uh, where basically we used to have a policy called dual deterrence. We were basically saying to China, okay, you don't know what we do. We might do if you attack Taiwan. So just know that. And it's supposed to deter China. But we also tell the Taiwanese, hey, don't do anything provocative. Don't say you're declaring independence. Don't cause all these cross-strait tensions because you don't know if we may come to defend you or not. And so don't think you're going to have our support and you get into a fight you can't possibly win yourself. They could spiral out of control. And so in the past, they have actually... The Americans have leaned on Taiwan to basically, you know, only allow certain, you know, people who aren't that pro-independence or that hawkish to come to power. And, um, and at this, you know, when Tsai Ing-wen had run previously, they did not support her. Uh, and, but under the Obama administration, that policy changed. And, uh, since then, as I said, you know, they've just escalated by sending all these congressional delegations and high level officials, starting with Alex Azar, who's like the health secretary, uh, um, under Trump, uh, they sent him. It was the highest level official who had been to Taiwan since 1979. And it's been off to the races since then. Biden in April, I think, started lifting all these re uh, certain restrictions on, you know, basically encouraging, to, uh, as Ned Price would say, deepening our unofficial relationship with Taiwan. The reason why it's risky is it sends a message that we are getting closer and closer to saying we will, you know, to reestablishing the defense commitment to Taiwan. And uh, they had warned that this is a red line. But again, we've known since 2008 that Ukraine is the brightest of all red lines. William Burns, the current CIA director, told the Bush administration that when he was the ambassador to Russia. And he said there's nobody in the whole political elite. It's not just Putin. They don't see this Ukraine potential Ukrainian membership in NATO as anything other than an existential threat to mm -hmm. Russia. And uh, and it's, you know, the Taiwan thing is arguably even more of a red line for China. And so, as McGregor said, you know, every major invasion of China has been launched from Taiwan. Uh, obviously, you know, the, at the end of the Chinese Civil War, which we, you know, uh, are, we backed Chiang Kai-shek. Um, I think, I mean, the estimates of people, I've heard like 15 million people died in that war. Uh, and eventually when Mao won and the nationalist forces fled to Taiwan, they were going to attempt to retake the island. But the U.S. sailed aircraft carriers there and basically prevented them from doing it. And ever since then... Look, there's been a lot of opportunities uh, to attack Taiwan, and they haven't done it. They have a very robust trade relationship. I think, uh, I don't know if it's 2020 or 2019, but the something like $150 uh, billion a year. Uh, the Taiwanese, uh, the China's Taiwan's greatest trading partner. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. There's millions of visits back and forth because these people are kin, you know, from the mainland to the island. And there's a lot of reasons this war will, you know, should not happen. The Chinese do not want to do it. It would be, it would be devastating for them in terms of uh, their international standing, their economy, all kinds of things. Could really, I mean, they're, I think they're the greatest food importer. Uh, they're entirely reliant on globalization, and they have a lot of problems with the certain uh, issues with demographics and uh, economics, and they have 
a giant mortgage bubble. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of incentives for them to not do this, but what we are doing is we are trying to provoke them. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And, uh, I think it's, um, yeah, I don't know if they're trying to, I mean, cause Lawrence Wilkerson told, uh, James Carden in, uh, I think it's in the Asia times where this piece is, but he told him that, look, the administrator, this is Colin Powell's former chief, uh, chief of staff he said, look, their plan is to, uh, you know, fund this war in Ukraine to stabilize Russia and basically see, they want to see regime change, uh, in Moscow. And then they want to take on China. So, I mean, that's the, le that's what the blob is doing right now. That's what the Biden administration really represents. Cause he's basically in a coma. So sending her there to me is just really the natural, it's extremely provocative and dangerous. I mean, they could have, they, we don't really know what they were going to do when they were, she was escorted by, I think, eight military warplanes, including F-15s. We mm -hmm. have, uh, we had just earlier that month, we had the uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, doing war drills in the South China Sea. We sent a, uh, a destroyer again, I believe, through the Taiwan Strait, a warship anyway. Uh, the, uh, you know, in, in May, uh, with the State Department's uh, Taiwan fact sheet or whatever it's called, they removed references to the One China policy. They removed references to <clears throat> not supporting Taiwan's uh, independence uh, forces, um, and and China called them out for this. I mean, they they have been very clear, especially uh, since the beginning of this year, that these this constant intervention, foreign intervention on our part in Taiwan, and our support for the pro independence forces could event could lead to a war between the U.S. and China. And we just have absolutely no interest in that on any level. And all the arguments about, well, semiconductors, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's like saying we have to go to war and dominate the Middle East because of uh, oil. We wasted trillions of dollars protecting uh, sea lanes over the last several decades when, when they really weren't under threat at all. It mm -hmm. was just waste. It's just an excuse for expanding the empire and fighting a bunch of unnecessary wars. And the truth is, this whole thing with China... Maybe they think they can just sort of rattle the cake. They can get them to uh, get, you know, just to the brink of war without it actually happening. Or maybe they want them to attack Taiwan so they can have sort of a Ukraine situation where we fund their fight and let them die. McGregor just said recently the casualties in Ukraine are something like 60, 70,000. Uh, and I think that could, I mean, in, wor in worst case scenarios, it could be actually a conservative estimate at the end of the day when we eventually find out how many people have died. But they have no, they don't care. I mean, they're using Ukraine as a human battering ram uh, right. against Russia. So I don't know what the real policy is. I mean, logistically, getting weapons to Taiwan could be dangerous. But I mean, under Trump, they started sending them F-16s and AGM E-84. Um, I'm forgetting the exact name, but missiles from uh, Lockheed that can you know, hit inland targets in China. Part of this Taiwan Policy Act 2022 is they potentially want to give them long range missiles that are capable of striking uh, you know, deep inside China. So, I mean... I don't know what the plan is, but they did this deliberately to provoke China. There was no, there's no possible other rationalization for this. If they want, if she wanted to tour some chip factory or talk about, you know, whatever the chips and science act and all this stuff and whatever her husband's investments are, former investments, they could have all done that over like what we're doing right now or something. You know what I mean? Like they could have done all of that online. So this was just a 100% an unforced uh, error and all, and I think they wanted it. They want China yeah. to be painted as this evil, um, you know, horrible state that we have to confront. Uh, and that is the direction everything is going like the Pentagon and all the ancillaries, the air force, the Navy, especially, I mean, Carlos del Toro is the secretary of the Navy. The, uh, Frank Kendall is formerly of Raytheon is secretary of the air force. All of them have said in their confirmation hearings, uh, I think Kendall said, I have three focus. I have three primary focuses, China, China, and China. Um, and Josh Hawley asked Carlos del Toro, do you think it's necessary that we be able to militarily defend Taiwan? And, uh, del Toro is like, absolutely. It's my, my primary focus is expanding our footprint in the Indo-Pacific and preparing basically for the, if I recall, I have it in one of my articles, I'm, I can't, the quote's not right there, but it's basically like we're preparing to have the capability to defend Taiwan. And, uh, the thing is, is, uh, there's a report, there's reports out about how this Taiwan policy act of 2022 is being held up until September after the August recess. They were supposed to do work on it like last week. <clears throat> it was supposed to be called up on the foreign relations committee. And so 
one of the things that Chris Murphy has said, who's the senator from Delaware, or no, from Connecticut, who's a Democrat, said that basically, or it said in the report, um, that one of the things that he wants to change is there's like a, a, there's a part of the proposal that says we need to mandate like a classified review by the Pentagon to just, I mean, to go over and see uh, what the plan is for the military to defend Taiwan. Uh, and it said, and he goes, can we change that to something like, you know, how do we prepare to deter force by the Chinese military? Because I mean, they're getting very close to saying that they will, you know, I mean, Biden's already done it several times. And the truth is like, as bad as it is having troops openly deployed to the mainland and training them for war with China and sending them all these arms are, I mean, at some, some means I think 2020 alone, I think we sold something like $5 billion, um, of weapons. And I think, uh, it's basically the worst thing we could do is to keep inching closer and closer to basically, uh, acknowledging and recognizing Taiwan's independence. Uh, and that's, that's by, that's the most bipartisan thing right now in the China policy. I mean, they're racing each other, the Republicans and the Democrats to lead the next delegation, uh, to go over there and to hype up the, these tensions and to show how brave they are and how tough they are on China and how much they support Taiwan. Meanwhile, they're just leading them to a slaughter. Um, and, uh, so it's just complete nonsense, but it's, it's like I said in, in the article, it, this is basically the song, the music that's been picked by the military industrial complex and all of them are just dancing to it. So the Republicans have to stop that because, um, if they do hate the Democrats, I mean, th this is just, I mean, look at Pelosi. I mean, they, that's, that's what this all gets us is near, we get, we get close to war with China all for someone's personal vanity and just to serve the, uh, priorities of the military industrial complex in the deep state a hundred percent man um i i titled this episode don't be a dumbass for the regime so don't let your feelings about people who are going to be killed in these wars by other countries propel you into getting the united states more involved because as we've laid out here the united states is already murdering plenty of people on a worldwide scale uh, if you care about people's rights, then clean your own house, you know, end the empire here at home, uh, <laughs> spreading the empire around the world more to counteract these other countries is not going to make lives better for the vast majority of people. Uh, Connor, where can people keep up with you? I've got your, uh, Twitter linked in the description, but you write at the Institute and you write for antiwar.com. So where can people keep up with all that stuff? Uh, both of those sites, uh, you'll see uh, I've got more articles coming out in the news section and all my columns are usually run in the viewpoints section. So you'll see them all there. We run conflicts of interest as well at the antiwar.com blog. Conflicts of interest, uh, my show with Kyle, that's at the Libertarian Institute in the right hand margin. And uh, all my articles will be right there in the featured articles page. And uh, everybody check out the Libertarian Institute because it's the best thing going in the libertarian movement right now. We got the best writers and the best podcasters. For sure. Thanks for joining me, man. Great conversation. We'll have to talk again. Um, I will be live streaming tomorrow night with Alex Stein. It was going to be on Tuesday night, but it's tomorrow night instead. So make sure you guys check in for that. That's going to cool. be 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then we got some more stuff coming at the end of the week. But thanks, everyone, for watching. And Connor, thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Reed. Ta talk to you again soon. Peace, man. All right.